And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That rather magical time when, you know, like anything can happen, and tonight, tonight we're going to be wading into what you might call deep waters. When I started the show many, many years ago, the one thing that Art Bell told me, remember, he's the guy that kind of suckered me into doing this. Oh, come on, Dick, it's easy, you know. You'll have millions of listeners. <clears throat> anyway, one of the things he said was, and he kind of emphasized this over and over and over again, he says, don't. Whatever you do, do not do politics. So, of course, tonight we're breaking uh, Art's first law. We're going to be doing politics. We're going to be doing it from a bit of a different perspective. I mean, in case you hadn't noticed, a few days ago we had an election. And in some quarters, you wouldn't notice because there's an awful lot of people on the side of the uh, uh, group that, that did not win that are saying that it's foul, it's a cheat, it's uh, fake, it's, uh, well, you can imagine all the things they're saying. And so if you go to the other side of midnight and you click on tonight's banner, which says another hyperdimensional election for November 9th, 2020, um, and click on that, that will take you to tonight's show with our guests, uh, Richard Spence and Laura London. We'll get to them in a moment. And just uh, hit on the um, uh, fast links where it says Richard Spence or Richard or Laura. And you click on mine and that will take you down to item number two, which is a news story, which basically is discussing some of the details of the Trump campaign's um, effort, intention, to fight the election and the provisional results announced uh, yesterday morning. Uh, in court. And, I mean, some of the things they claim they're finding are very innovative and very intriguing, you know, in a novel or in a TV movie, or, but, but in real life? Anyway, nine of these have been submitted to court so far, and all nine have been rejected for various reasons, mostly because the uh, suits do not contain evidence. I mean, to me, this is very puzzling because if, as the president is maintaining, he's won and all the votes for, for Biden are basically bogus and there's evidence to back this up, massive voter fraud in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, maybe Georgia, which are the key you know, battleground states of, of this uh, cycle, you would expect that the Republicans, who obviously will benefit if Trump has four more years, you'd expect them to be lining up supporting his position. And they're not. I mean, I saw Governor Christie, who of course was a member of uh, President Trump's original transition team. He was in fact head of it four years ago. He was on one network this morning saying, you know, if if Donald's right, bring on the evidence. Um, the most innovative conspiracy theory that I have heard, and I've heard this because I'm kind of part of a number of email chains 
some of them run by avid Trump supporters. And, you know, I'm just like a little bird on the wall, just watching and listening and looking at the ebb and flow of conversation. And there are lots of interesting links. And, you know, you click on the links and you look and see what's being proffered. The most interesting aspect of the conspiracy that Biden is really not president-elect, that Trump really is one, and there's this massive effort to defraud the country and him by stealing the election. The most interesting theory has to do with Michigan, which I saw sometime this afternoon. Apparently, some retired now member of the intelligence community, and we all know how much we can trust them, is spreading the word that secretly, in anticipation of massive voter and mail-in ballot fraud by the Democrats, that Trump secretly had the ballots in every state watermarked. And now in certain states, and they picked Michigan, um, which of course is run by a Democratic governor, that Trump has not gotten along with. Apparently, according to this, this story, which is making the rounds on the internet and is being passed off through these Trump supporter email chains, um, the National Guard has now gone in and commandeered the ballots in Michigan. And they have subjected the uh, ballots to a scanning process looking for an invisible watermark that Trump, with extraordinary foresight, had carefully but surreptitiously placed on all the ballots. And that way they can tell real ballots from fake ballots, counterfeit ballots, okay? Anyway, the bottom line in this is they're finding 70% fraud. Let me repeat that. In this story being passed around by Trump supporters, they are finding ostensibly in this watermark, you know, double sting operation, 70% fraudulent ballots voting for Biden. Gosh. So what I'm intrigued with is um, is, this, is, is the kind of the details of the story because for one thing, every state conducts under law its own separate voter functions. The laws around voting, registration, identification, mail-in ballots, all of this. The federal government has zero role to play. Furthermore, because each state is divided into congressional districts and each congressional district has different candidates, you know, for House and local down to sheriffs and, you know, superintendents of school boards and various voter, um, uh, uh, you know, referendum items, every district has to print separate ballots all over the country, thousands and thousands and thousands of separate districts with separate Republican and Democratic oversight, to say nothing of the secretaries of state. And I'm just kind of wondering how all this secret um, watermarking of ballots all over the country was carried out by the president when, in fact, he has nothing, either legally, politically, or technically, to do with the printing of ballots. 
And this process is overseen by joint committees of Republicans and Democrats. I mean, in this country, we love institutional bureaucracy. So the more layers of people watching and the more opposite members you can get on, the better. One kind of wonders how this vast conspiracy, which the perpetrators of this of this story, this model, say <clears throat> is now being extrapolated to, I forget how many other states. It's something to do with not only mail-in ballots, but also another wrinkle in this story is that there is a computer hack in something called Dominion Voter Software, which was supplied again to Michigan. And the uh, extrapolation is that this same hack, which was commanded and carried out by, quote, the deep state, took whatever ballots the observers in the uh, uh, ballot counting process observed and changed it invisibly in the computer. So it didn't matter what the ballot said. You know, whoever was running this hack basically just programmed in Biden and eliminated, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of, of Trump votes. That's the story. The problem is when you start to examine it in detail, it totally breaks down. There's no evidence anywhere, not the least of which is if this was true, if this story is making the rounds within Republican circles and the Republicans in the House and the Senate need the president to continue their you know agenda for the next four years, one in the Republican Party at some level of visibility, like Governor Christie, why aren't they jumping on this story? Unless it's total, total fiction. Back in the good old days, <clears throat> when we didn't have social media and Facebook and Twitter and all that, life was a lot simpler. Anyway, we're going to be dealing with the histories of previous elections and some of the kind of choke points and the idea that we're so desegregated, we're so, you know, opposed to each other. 70 million people, 71 now as of uh, uh, this evening, voted for Trump and 75 million and change voted for Biden. That means it's pretty evenly split. Does this mean that we're at loggerheads as an electorate, that we can't talk across the aisles, work across the aisle? Uh, that a Biden administration couldn't get things done. Those are some of the things we're going to talk about tonight when we uh, bring on our guests. Let me go through a couple other news items here, because while all this is going on, of course, we're we're in the midst of a raging pandemic. 120,000 new cases reported just today, and I haven't uh, monitored closer the death count, but it's been averaging about a thousand people in the United States alone dying of COVID per day. <clears throat> okay. A few weeks ago, a couple, three weeks ago, I, I very cautiously presented some extraordinary data. If you look at item number two in my items, this is a screen grab of, a, um, uh, of the European CDC death count by day uh, for November 7th. And if you click on it, it gets bigger. The thing that's most remarkable and what's really stuck out to me as soon as I saw this display is the jagged up and down, extraordinarily rhythmic pattern to the death counts. If you put your cursor 
in the actual website, which we'll get to in a moment, on any of these points, it gives you a day and a number of cases and or a number of, of deaths, and you can just move your cursor left and right, and the line will follow. And you can see that this periodicity for the peaks and the valleys of the death counts per day has an extraordinary, repeating, relentlessly rhythmic periodicity of seven days. Seven solar days. Over and over and over and over again. Okay, moving on. Uh, item number three. This now, from the same CDC, European CDC website, is a listing of the cases worldwide. And number four, if you scan down a little further, what I've done is I've simply taken the two graphs and I've superimposed them to exactly the same scale, one over the other. And what you want to look at very carefully is when you superimpose, you know, two white lines, you get a brighter white line. And in the middle of the graph, where the uh, plots overlap, because remember, the cases have been rising and the deaths have been kind of constant, if you can call that extraordinary number uh, constant, uh, with these average peaks and valleys. Where they overlap, you'll see that the peak of deaths occurs on the same day as the peak of the number of new cases. And the dearth of deaths, the low point in the number of deaths per day, occurs at the low point in the daily number of cases. And by any science that we think we know, this is impossible. Let me repeat that. By any science that the medical community thinks they know, this is not possible. So what's going on? Well, I have my theories and assumptions, and we'll get to those, uh, you know, sometime in the in the uh, not-too-distant future. But what I wanted to do, I just lost my website here. Hang on a second. What I wanted to do was to point to the last item uh, in that list, and that is item number... Wait for it. Six. Number seven, number, you know, number five is the actual European CDC website, so you can go and check all this stuff uh, yourself. Number six is the one that's really amazing. Because what I found a few days ago, because it was sent to me by one of our listeners, was a study, not yet peer-reviewed, published by three scientists, one from uh, Israel and two from the University of Illinois, they have noticed this same bizarre periodicity. And they actually wrote a paper called Oscillatory Dynamics in Infectivity, that's the number of cases per day, and death rates of COVID-19. And they are as baffled, because this does not comport with anything that we would think of in terms of mainstream science. I mean, they, they are as baffled as I would be if I didn't know a little bit more about what might be going on, um, including the remarkable 
tetrahedral geometry of the spike proteins on the surface of the coronavirus itself. That tetrahedral configuration says to me hyperdimensional torsion field physics. Well, I am, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to try to get these guys or one of them on the show to talk to for a, an evening. And uh, <clears throat> let me read from their paper, because again, that link is really crucial. They've, they've noticed this periodicity, they've noticed the simultaneity, and they are baffled. I mean, they put out certain tentative ideas, but you can tell they're, they're not really attached to them because they just don't make any sense. Let me read you one line from their paper, and then uh, we will continue the conversation when I get one of them on the air. Even though these effects could be, to some extent, caused by period oscillations, periodic oscillations in human measuring and reporting of these events, as we've said many, many times, we, the authors, they say, cannot exclude more profound reasons for these observations. And what do you think they mean by profound reasons? Is it possible, looking at these two graphs and how they're simultaneously coinciding when there's no real connectivity that you can think of? Well, the only thing that I can think of is there's some external force which is impelling these events simultaneously in totally separate phenomena. Or are they totally separate? Anyway, we will continue this conversation at another time, but I thought you'd like to know that um, there are some very interesting professional eyes looking at this mystery. If you look at those graphs in their paper, it's obvious this is going on worldwide, country to country, vastly disparate political systems, economic systems, etc. Yet this simultane simultaneity, I'll get that right, shows up. It should not, which to me is foundational for the fact that there's something absolutely weird, bizarre, crucially important to pay attention to about this virus because it's doing things that no other diseases that we have mapped, as far as I know, in human history have ever done. And the reason I know that is because if this kind of oscillatory periodicity was part of normal medical knowledge, <clears throat> why would these guys in Illinois and in Israel be writing a paper about the anomaly and talking about potentially profound reasons it exists. Okay, um, the election. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence. Uh, Dr. Spence is a now professor emeritus of history at the University of Idaho. He's been on the show many, 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 many times. He's kind of our resident historian. You can read the rest of his bio there on the uh, other side of Midnight Guest page, so I won't go through it again and again, because you guys can do that yourself. Our other guest tonight is uh, Laura London. Laura is a 
psychologist. She studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington and earned her undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from a private Jesuit university. After working for many years in neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine at the University Hospitals of Cleveland and its VA Psychiatric Hospital, she left that scene and entered into a 17-year Jungian analysis, sending her deeply into the work of Carl Gustav Jung. She attended a wide variety of lectures, workshops, and seminars, and eventually wound up in 2015 creating a podcast called Speaking of Jung which if you click on that, which I think is somewhere there, and if it's not, Laura, we can put it in after the show, um, you'll find some very interesting discussion. Laura's here tonight kind of as an observer. She's going to add some uh, psychological, shall we say, um, oversight in terms of what we're talking about. Um, And there are some interesting things she brings to the table, which are part of her items. If you go to her fast link and click on Uh, some items, including some astrological input from a mutual friend of ours, uh, Rick Levine, because that's why I called this show tonight another hyper-dimensional election. Because the first one that I really tracked and monitored was the one of Barack Obama. In fact, I even put out a a DVD called The Hyper-Dimensional Election of Barack Obama, And I saw and see certain fingerprints from that experience in this experience, and uh, we may get into some of those tonight. Anyway, without further ado, let me welcome my guest to the other side of midnight, Rick Spence, Dr. Spence. Welcome back. Hello, hello. I'm not hearing Rick Spence. Very weird. Why am I not hearing Rick Spence? Everything is the way it should be. Oh, don't tell me that the technological gremlins have surfaced once again. Hmm. Keith, do you see anything that's wrong? Hello, hello. I'm here. No, I, 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 all right. I I hear Laura. I, I do not hear Rick. I don't hear Rick either. Did he, get dis- did he get disconnected? Uh, no, he's still there, and his icon is indicating that there's audio coming from him. Hmm. Just don't hear him. Well, that's, let us do this, okay? Why don't we get rid of him and then redial and see if we can reconnect, okay? Okay. In the meantime, uh, we've got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. Laura, you and I are going to have... Exclusive conversation for five minutes. <laughs> so what's Where your overall... Say again? Where should we go? Well, my question is, what, what's your impression of what's going on? I mean, um, I don't know who you voted for. I don't care. Uh, you don't know who I voted for. You shouldn't care. But what we're looking at is a common scene tonight where an enormous part of the country, like half the country really seems determined to not believe the same procedural um, uh, results from various election bureaus and and uh, secretaries of state all over the country that we have in countless uh, previous elections, including the one that elected Donald Trump, where he won <clears throat> in the Electoral College by something less 
than 80,000 votes in, in those three states that he won, the Midwest states, uh, he was able to, you know, pick up those electoral votes by, I think it was 11,000 in Wisconsin and 40,000 in Michigan, and I forget how many, maybe 20,000 in Pennsylvania. The point is it was razor thin then, and I don't remember any Republican, Democrats rather, saying, oh, Donald Trump stole the election. So why are we now at this loggerheads of literally a large percentage of Americans tonight do not accept that the Biden presidency is on track for inauguration on the 20th of January, 2021. Is that right? Uh, a large percent of the population believes that it was, uh, there was some sort of funny business going on? Well, right? polls are very suspicious, but uh, I must say I've seen an awful lot of interviews, you know, the, what these ran, random man and woman on the street interviews. And to a person, the Trump people are all claiming the vote has been stolen. Because they're taking well, their cues from the president. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is going on psychologically? Well, I don't know what's going on psychologically, but I do know that there is not a lot of confidence in the Electoral College. And what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing privately is a lot of people would like that totally restructured. Well, wait, wait, wait. That, that's a separate issue from can you trust the results? You know, the whole idea of the Electoral College uh, being kind of shifted uh, in terms of population, that it overly favors minorities in, in the rural parts of the, of the country. I mean, you can have a state like Montana, which has, you know, what, maybe a million, two million people. And then you can have California, which has 30 million. And the uh, Electoral College gives, you know, an extraordinary weight to rural counties and rural states compared to urban centers um, in a way that a lot of people have argued is inherently unfair. And when we get Rick back, uh, I'm going to be asked. There you are. There you are. Okay. You're I'm here. Very, very quiet. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to continue uh, this line of questioning. And then after the bottom of the hour, uh, I'll bring you on, Rick, and we'll We'll talk about the Electoral College because that's where I kind of wanted to begin anyway. Um, okay. Is it really relevant? Was it relevant when it was instituted? Did it have a good reason? Was it founded in the, the need of the founders to kind of give obeisance to certain factions like landowners that owned slaves, that kind of thing? In other words, we'll get into all of that. But back to you, Laura. Um, what I'm asking is, why do people who, I mean, we've been living through this process for our entire lives, why is this the election when an awful lot of people on the side that lost, or certainly from all the trends, appears to have lost, because of course the vote will not be formally certified for several weeks by the various states, and they don't all do it on the same day, you know, it's spaced out, and then of course it all comes to a head when the Electoral College meets in December, I think it's December 3rd, and has a formal vote, and at that time the election is certified as proven. But in all these previous elections, the extrapolations by statisticians and mathematicians and network, um, uh, you know, um, election, you know, uh, broadcast uh, re result boards and all that, 
no one has really objected to their projections, including the current president, until this election, which makes me think there's something really different about this election. Well, didn't we vote differently this time? For instance, I used the mail-in ballot, which I got a couple months ago. I had never done it that way before. It seems like there was a lot of room for human error, um, foul play that didn't exist before. Because in the past, I would go to a voting, use an old-fashioned voting booth, right? And the punch and the punch card. And now there's a lot of room for error with this mail-in thing. Do you remember all the controversy about the United States Postal Service that was oh, going yes, on yes, this yes, past yes. summer? Yep. <clears throat> anyway, um, what I want to do now is um, we're back to the bottom of the hour, and I've got to do a break. So let's uh, put all our guests on hold, and I'll do that there. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to uh, do something a little bit different. Um and I'm, if I can figure out, oh, there we are, okay. We're going to be playing some campaign songs from previous elections. I thought this would be kind of fun for bumpers. So here's one from 1928. Let's see if you can hear who it's for. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The Other Side of the News is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. 
It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, the 8th of November, 2020. My God, the end of the year is in sight. Ah, what a year. What was it the Queen Elizabeth called a year, many, many years ago, an annus horribilis, which is Latin for horrible year? I mean, 2020 is definitely going to go down in the books as, well, it's going to go down in the books. Okay, Rick, um... The electrical, co- the electrical. Oh, I'm in great shape electrical. tonight. Yeah, well, it's kind of updated the 21st century. The electoral college. It's always bothered me because I've seen arguments that it's really what makes the American experiment work, and then recently, last you know, 10, 20 years, I've seen arguments that it's really a holdover that should be gotten rid of. And one clear example is tonight. You know, we've got, what, 75 million ballots for Biden. We've got 71 million for Trump. In any other Western democracy, you know, people's votes win. But we have to go through this two-step process, which gets back to the idea of federalism and, you know, decentralizing the electoral process to the individual states. And then everything gets kind of, bollock stuffed because people I mean Trump is now again in terms of electrical 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 electoral college votes has lost twice with the popular vote when the electrical the electoral vote I'll get that right tonight I'm going to keep going until I get it right electoral electoral okay um comes out you know the way everyone would kind of expect in synchronization and there's something inherently, as Laura was pointing out before the break, that makes that whole system very suspect to 21st century voters. 
So how the hell did we get an electoral college? Well, it's in the Constitution, all right? That's how we got it, along with everything else in the Constitution. Yeah, then all Constitution and also had what? Slaves as three-quarters humans or something? Or? Well, that, that was eventually a compromise that came. That was the three-fifths compromise. Ah, three-fifths. Uh, because that was the whole thing of that, you know, the, the southern states were, uh, had a much less of a population. The, the, the population of what would become the Confederacy was about half that of the North, and then about 40% of that population were African slaves. And so, basically, uh, slave-winning states wanted to have it both ways. Um, they wanted to have their slaves counted as as, as a population, but on the other hand, they didn't want to give them any political rights. I mean, okay, these people are not going to, ex you know, they're not going to be able to vote. They are property. They're not actually human, but nevertheless, we want them considered to be three-fifths of a human in order to enhance our state's clout in, in the uh, a portion of, of political power, hmm. uh, which is actually a pretty cynical arrangement if you think about it, but, you know, that, that the argument went back and forth. Now, the Electoral College has been complained about since at least the mid-19th century. I mean, it didn't take to the 20th century for people who, to catch on that then the main criticism then and now was that it is a um, medieval anachronism. All right? So I'm not sure legitimately how medieval it is, but I would argue that you could make a good case that it is a, an anachronism. Why does it exist? Uh couple of reasons. One was that if you go back again, maybe this is something we can talk about more this evening, you know, what did the United States actually look like when it came into being at the end of the 18th century? And so one of the things we have to keep in mind is that before the United States of America existed, there were the British North American colonies. And those colonies had all been separately established. They were separate political entities. They each had their colonial legislature and particular political customs and system of landholding. So that's always something to keep in mind, that, you know, this is why at least state legislatures in the original states can argue that, well, we, we actually predate, we are a legislative body that existed before the United States Congress. We are the legislative bodies that essentially approved the Constitution and the creation of the United States government and, and the Congress that went along with it. So in other words, these, these state regimes, these colonial regimes that then became states, already had a kind of history and they already had customs. But the other thing about them is that they weren't united. Remember, the, the British didn't administer their North American colonies as a single entity. They administered it as essentially a dozen separate colonial corporations that had a very limited degree of internal self-government, but were basically economically hostage to the parliament in London. So you had a lot of disparity between... Rick, let, let me ask a question. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> was that dictated in large part because, you know, Britain was across a very large ocean and you couldn't really effectively bureaucratically manage the colonies from Britain? It was impossible so they had to have local control, local rule. Yeah. Well, also because people in London don't want to be bothered with every little thing. That really wasn't really wasn't an issue. See, the whole reason why colonies existed. This was the view from London. 
The view from London and Parliament there is that these colonies basically grew out of royal chartered companies that had set them, they essentially were economic ventures that then became colonial political entities. But the whole reason why these colonies existed was to provide resources and markets for the mother country. That is, the only reason they existed were, was as an economic enterprise. And that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you look at most of the issues in the revolution itself, the whole issue of taxation, the issue of imports and exports, uh, the price of tea, for instance, mm. becomes a political issue. Because the whole relationship between England and the colonies was governed by economics, and, and therefore the, the idea was that the, the colonies should make money for the mother country, and that was the only thing that was important. That's the only thing that we really care about. And therefore, the, the fewer expenses that we have to bear, the more that they can support themselves and manage their own affairs, well, that, that's, just, that's just practical. Now, could you have, this is one of these kind of what-ifs that never happened, could you, as the Parliament, the, the British Parliament, have granted full political rights to British subjects and the subjects of these colonies. You could have. I mean, you, it would be more problematic trying to... In other words, they could elect members to set in the Parliament in London. And true, it was a month's trip across the Atlantic to get there, but things went back and forth all the time. But and, the, the and, and, gets, and, yeah. and the pace of life was much different because yeah. of the limitations of technology. So if you had a vote, you could easily have scheduled it so that, you know, let's say Franklin could have gone back and forth between the colonies and London and been able to represent his government as part of one of the states, right? It was, yes. It was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. And the main thing about it, though, is that politically empowering, granting full political rights to all of the colonists, well, then meant that they were going to vote in essentially national elections. They were going to have a cloud in that. They would then form some kind of general political interest group. In other words, the Americans would become like the Scots and the Irish, right? Ah. See, England was already managing other territories. I mean, essentially these countries that they, the other uh, states in the British Isles that they had effectively conquered, but they had integrated those, so it wouldn't have been impossible to integrate the Americans, but it would have added another, another level of complication, which no one wanted, because the colonies there were there to make money. And when you lived in the colonies, you were granted the protection of the British crown. Uh, they would argue you were pretty much left alone to manage things on your own, so what are you complaining about? Um, that, by the way, was, was the, the general view of the American Revolution through... English eyes was that the American colonies or the rebels were immensely ungrateful people. <laughs> they really were. They were just immensely ungrateful people who didn't know when they were well off. Hmm. And there, so, um, so the electoral college is there. But it, in in the American colonies, in other words, there was a there was a society, there were political establishments, there were there were the rich and the poor. There we go. If you want to look at one of the things that tended to divide people in the colonies before that became America, and you can still look at one of the dividing issues today, the rich and the poor. The colonies had their 1%. I mean, they had a 10%, they had a 5%, and yes, they had a 1%. 
an example of that would be is that in New York, um, the Duke of York, who's essentially named the place after himself, had made large land grants. One of the things he wanted to do was to create large landowners. You know, running things the way you do in England. Have landowners that will keep the peasants in line. And so it, in the Hudson Valley, in the main populated areas of New York, there were five well, Wait, wait, wait. Mostly, well, what, the was, way, wasn't yeah. the idea of landowners also essential to the economic theory? Because basically in the 1700s, the major industry that provided you know, income to England was agriculture. And large yeah. land plantations would give you agriculture to then send the bounty back to the mother country. Yeah, and it was a way of managing agriculture. I mean, there's a certain logic to it. So the argument would be that, let's say you have a country full of small, independent farmers. You know, each of them have 20 to 100 acres. They grow their crops, but they essentially operate independently. Well, one of the things about small, independent farmers is that they're very vulnerable. Um they often have very limited resources. They don't have enough land to make a huge amount of profit. They're, they're basically at the mercy of, of the weather every year as it comes along. And so a, you can have famines in which a large proportion of the population could starve if the situation was bad enough. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea was is that if you take all of those little farmers and you place them under the strict but benign authority of a patroon, of a, of a landlord, remember, of a kind of aristocrat who will then manage them, really sort of, you know, literally lord it over them to have <laughs> judicial and economic control, uh, who will take, you know, will reap most of the profits from what they do, but will give them a certain degree of protection, because the idea is that a peasant who lives on a lord's estate because the Lord has greater resources and will, let's say, can accumulate food reserves, can you know, help them out if a famine comes along. But your chances that economically, your chances of survival are better off as a tenant farmer than as an independent farmer. You know. Um, well, in other all right, let me, get rich. L- yeah. let me interrupt yeah. again. In the, in the Americas, the added problem was you not, didn't just have weather, you had Indians. Yes. I mean, you have people taking over and kicking out indigenous population of an entire continent but they didn't go peacefully and so individual farmers you know i'm thinking of those great westerns i used to watch as a kid where you know settlers were very very vulnerable to indians so you Mm -hmm. had you had double problems which is why consolidation made sense right well it's one of the reasons why people went off to the frontier and risked indian attack because very often what they were trying to do is that they were people who were landless. You know, if you landed in Baltimore, you know, if you come over in the mid-18th century, most of the good land near the coast is already taken. It's either taken by small farmers or it's taken by the large land-grant landlords. Again, like the five families that controlled two million acres in New York and pretty much everybody else worked for. Hmm. Um. By the way, when the revolution came along, those five families lost the special political status that they had. They did not lose their land. Oh. They still had exactly the same kind of control that they they had previously. But the whole question might be, why would you go off to the frontier, you know, have to cut down a lot of trees, risk attack by hostile natives? Well, because that was the one place that you could get free land. And and that gives you an idea as in a way 
how desperate people were. You know, if you wanted to essentially live on your own to establish independent farms, you had to get away from the area where the large estates, where the good land was already taken by somebody. And the only thing you could do there is you have to work for them. If you want to work for yourself as a farmer, you had to go to the frontier. Go west, young man, that's, go west. It, it is, but you see, that's the whole sort of engine that drives that. The reason why there's this constant migration, and remember, it's most people in American history never lived on the frontier, right? 19th century, when all the wagon trains are gone, most people never rode on a wagon train. All right, only a relatively small percent of the, of, the, of the population did that because most other people who were living someplace in New York or New Jersey or Ohio and they had a farm or a business or so they were otherwise settled. But again, if you were looking for an area that you could sort of stake your claim on, the West was the area you could do that. I mean, you could go to California and you could hunt for gold, you could form farms, you could form a business to sell the implements to the people who hunted for gold, which is a smart thing to do, by the way. Whereas back East... Everything was taken. Everything that everything that was worth anything was already owned, and so you had to work for someone else, mm. or you had to leverage your business away from them. And so, yeah, you know, so the, the American frontier is this this kind of dynamic place. But you got to keep in mind what's really driving it isn't just an adventurous spirit. People don't go off to oh, no, the no. Oregon Trail just because you know they feel like they're adventurous. They go there because they're economically desperate, or become like the Donner Party victims of history. Yeah, okay. And you, that can happen. You can end up, you know, kick, turning cannibal. <laughs> You're trapped in the snow in the Sierras. But remember, that only happened once, or, you know, maybe two or three times. But not often. Most people managed to do it. It was a dangerous business. Of course, you also get something else. This is one of these things that, yeah, there also meant that there was, uh, Laura can maybe can chime in on this, but it's been called the, uh, the, the sort of, semi-sociopathic or psychopathic aspects of the American frontier that you also got a lot of people who really couldn't live in normal society. Oh, the misfits. And therefore, the misfits. Yeah, I mean, you know, those people that we love in Western movies, but a lot of them were, uh, were psychos. Wasn't, wasn't that Marilyn Monroe's last movie with Clark Gable, The Misfits? Oh, The Misfits, yeah. 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 But, but yeah, much, the, much the frontier was a place where, if you were weird, on the frontier, weirdness actually was a survival value. Yeah, or or it wasn't it wasn't as noticeable. I mean, you know, where back east, you know, um, being hired as a regulator to kill rustlers was probably a difficult job to get. I'm sure you could be hired to kill someone, <laughs> but it was that. That's why the the the, the problems uh, of of you know of administering justice over very wide, sparsely inhabited areas. But there was. There was a great deal of violence. Uh, the West the West was a, a violent place. And, and part of it that made it violent was, I think, just the kind of psychological profile that uh, you got among... I mean, most of the population weren't psychos, but there was a higher proportion of them there, arguably, than than you would find elsewhere, because that's the one place that they could they could get away to. And then you also had the competition for these resources. Mm. You know, so there's this competition for land, and then, you know, then the railroads move in, and you know how that works out. And if the railroads want land and a bunch of small farmers want land, who got the land? The railroad did. Mm. So that kind of brings us back in a long way towards <laughs> there's there's always an elite. And so 
one of the re- the reasons why the electoral college comes in this would be my the the, the primary reason was to ensure that the existing elite elite would maintain its position. It, it is a check on the mob. Okay, mm. the last thing that anyone wanted to do, who considered themselves a responsible adult in 18th century America, was to give the vote to what was considered to be a large number of unwashed, largely uneducated people. Remember, the guys who, you know, our founding fathers, as we call them, the 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 Continental Congress the whole sort of political organization that grew out of it was was from the existing colonial elite okay and those people those people who generally had positions before in the colonial economic and political structure uh, if you chose the right side in the revolutionary war you kept that that power and so it was a check i mean it was to prevent the very thing from letting a majority of the mass electorate make critical decisions because you don't trust those people Mm. and therefore there had to be a way of ensuring that ultimately the vote on president didn't come down to the mass electorate it came down to the electors who were chosen for that particular particular task and that would be the other the other thing that fit into this is that because of the unequal populations of the colonies that became the states the smaller states felt that they would be completely overlooked yeah they would be run roughshod over by the more populous states you know, that, the way, that's the argument that i have heard in favor of the college yeah. in that it basically evened the playing field that doesn't even the playing field. I mean, I mean, California has what fifty-five electoral votes. I think Idaho has four. Nevada has six. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, that, that it's not even. I mean, it's not even based proportionally on on population, really. So, someone in California could argue that well, Nevada, based on its population, really has too many votes compared to us. But Nevada will always argue that you've got so many more that. It doesn't really matter, you know, that our that our six are well. well, well but how how just are sort of lost in the shuffle? How are the number of electoral votes per state allocated? That I don't know. What <laughs> I mean, there is it, it is increased over a period of time. Um, I thought it was population based, roughly, kinda. Rough. It is roughly kinda, but it's not exactly. I mean, isn't it technically having to do with the number of congressional districts and that kind of thing? Yeah. But it's always the smaller states will always have more or often will have more votes than it might be justified if you're simply counting voters. Because the idea is that they they have to have enough to register in some way. I mean, this isn't a kind of uniquely American thing. So, you know, if you were to look at 19th century, when the, the German Empire was formed, there is a... And the Reichstag and the, the representation within the government. Prussia was half, you know, was the biggest state with half the territory and half the population. But they allowed the Bavarians, the Württembergers, and others to have a slightly larger part, so they would feel that they were committed to it in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have to feel that you have some kind of role. So it's it was a a compromise to keep the smaller states feeling as if they had some sort of skin in the game, so to speak. But it was mostly to control the mob. And and so the question is, why 
why hasn't this been? I mean, of all of the different constitutional amendments that have come along, we've got what now, 27? I think we're up to 27, yeah. Yes, where, you know, the Electoral College is still there. I mean, senators became popularly elected. That was the 10th Amendment, I think. I think it's later than that, but it comes along in the, in the early, early, particularly the early 20th century. But senators that essentially had been appointed by the, the state legislatures then became popularly elected. But the Electoral College remains, even though for the better part of a century at least, if not a century and a half, people have looked at that and go that that is a, that is a anachronistic institution. You know, even if you can make the argument that the mass of people in the colonies back in the 1780s or 90s were, well, just too dumb to vote effectively. Um, I mean, that itself is kind of a weird thing if you think about it. Yes, everyone's going to vote, but we really don't trust you, so we're going to create a whole other area that will that will temper that in some way. And it almost makes you wonder in a way, really, how important was mass voting to begin with? I mean, it, it's always made me suspect to some degree that it's always one of those things that's handed to people as if it's a great gift, but really it's a kind of empty one in many ways. Um, it, it seems to empower people, but it really doesn't empower people. I mean, for instance, I don't even think um, that electors are absolutely bound to vote the way that their constituents did. Well, wait, wait, wait. Then there's been a new Supreme Court ruling. They are. They are. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. that, remember, you had to have a Supreme Court ruling to establish that. But, mm-hmm. I mean, by the way, by the way, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Google is your friend. April 8th, 1913, the 17th Amendment. 17th. Okay. There we go. So, so things have changed, but the Electoral College has, has stayed, and, and, and here's the reason why I think it has remained, despite everyone could look at it and argue, yeah, it's kind of archaic and really sort of, you know... Now, Taylor, why don't we hold that? It is undemocratic, yeah. We're coming up to the top of the hour, and I, I don't want to give short shrift to anything tonight, so why don't we hold it there? My guests this morning are Laura London, who's been very silent, thinking psychologically as to when she can contribute something that she's got some really cool stuff wait wait till you see and dr richard spence uh, our resident historian what we're going to do now is um we're, we're going to take a break as i said at the top of the show i've got some surprises tonight here are some more campaign songs which i thought would kind of be intriguing this one is from 1948 from the progressive party The donkey is tired and thin The elephant thinks he'll move in They yell and they fuss But they ain't fooling us Cause their brothers ride under the skin It's the same, same merry-go-round Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant Bob up and down on the same merry-go-round the elephant comes from the north thanks for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available 
to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>